I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. My guest today is philosopher, psychologist, and cultural historian Richard Tarnas. Archetypal astrology seems to have provided unexpectedly a kind of Rosetta Stone for the understanding of the psyche. The correlations of the planets with the particular kinds of experiences people have in the unfolding of life and with the psychological dynamics and even psychopathology and with therapeutic breakthroughs and so forth is so consistent and so precise it has convinced us that in the future future textbooks of psychology will look back on 20th century modern psychologists working without the aid of astrology as being very much like medieval astronomers working without the aid of the telescope. Richard Tarnas was born in 1950 in Geneva, Switzerland, of American parents. He grew up in Michigan, where he studied Greek, Latin, and the classics under the Jesuits. In 1968, he entered Harvard, where he studied Western intellectual and cultural history and death psychology, graduating with an A.B. cum laude in 1972. For ten years, he lived and worked at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, studying with Joseph Campbell, Gregory Bateson, Houston Smith, and Stanislav Grof, and later served as Director of Programs and Education. He received his Ph.D. from Saybrook Institute in 1976. From 1980 to 1990, he wrote The Passion of the Western Mind, a narrative history of Western thought which became a bestseller and continues to be a widely used text in universities throughout the world. He is the founding director of the graduate program in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he currently teaches. He also teaches on the faculty of the Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, and gives many public lectures and workshops in the U.S. and abroad. You've written two remarkable books, uh, The Passion of the Western Mind and Cosmos and Psyche, and I'd like to talk, first of all, about Passion of the Western Mind. And I wanted to ask if your time at Jesuit High School and at Harvard really impelled you to go through the cultural history that you did in in, um, Passion of the Western Mind. Oh, I think that they played a huge role. Um, You know, the Jesuits are, you know, from the Renaissance on, they were the sort of classic European educators who um, felt that uh, a basic classical education, getting Greek and Latin and the, uh, you know, literature and the humanities, philosophy and so forth, would would shape um, uh, the mind of the young Christian boy and then man to become a, uh, a a worthwhile human being. And that became a model that actually much of European education was based on from that point on. The Jesuit model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both Protestant and Catholic educators uh, looked to the Jesuits. You know, they, they educated Galileo and Descartes and Voltaire and Diderot. They were pretty, um, even 20th century people like Heidegger. Foucault and so forth, James Joyce, yeah, they they really um, knew what they're doing. So I absorbed that uh, strong um, influence, and and then I went to Harvard in 1968, and of course that from 68 to 72 was a period of great 
countercultural ferment and a lot a lot of the education that anybody in a university in those years would be getting would be outside of the um outside of the school room um so uh at the same time though um i seemed i was very much drawn towards courses at harvard that gave me a a grounding in like the history of philosophy, the history of astronomy from Plato to and the pre-Socratics all the way to Newton and then Einstein, history of philosophy from Plato and Aristotle up to the um, uh, 20th century, history of drama from the Greek tragedians, Sophocles and so forth, right up to Oscar Wilde. And it was, it was music. I, there was something in me that wanted to uh, try to get a, uh, a, a sense of the of the longer term historical evolution of the Western mind and spirit, and in retrospect, I think you know sometimes, you know, I think it was Jung that might have said, it, "It's not so much that Goethe created Faust as that Faust created Goethe," and um, <laughs> I I sometimes feel in retrospect that the books that I was supposed to write, like The Passion of the Western Mind, which really I sought to basically tell that whole story of the of the historical evolution of the the kind of inner history of the West, you know, the the of of, of our culture, of our worldview, of philosophy, religion, science, and in retrospect, I think it's almost as if the book re- reached out from the future into the past and required me to sort of prepare myself to be able to write it. I don't want to make too big a thing of it, but I think many writers do have that sense that they are drawn into certain experiences, that they get particular, you know, teachers, educational environments, and so forth, that uh, would be shaping them to um, uh, perform or achieve a particular task later in life. And so um, both Harvard and the Jesuits deeply shaped... um, what went into that book. And in some respects, there was a third um, big educational stage for me, and that was after Harvard, I went to Esalen Institute in Big Sur. And Esalen, as you probably know, is this, was a uh, great center of educational ferment as well, uh, where East and West, body and soul and spirit, um, ancient and contemporary were all explored, and, and uh, many great thinkers were there. I, I particularly came to study with uh, Stanislav Grof, um, Joseph Campbell, Gregory Bateson, and Houston Smith. And they... Um, well, you got to participate in epistemology there, because I wanted to say that in your in the epilogue of, of um, Passion of the Western Mind, you talk about participatory epistemology. And was this an outgrowth of, of your time at Esalen? Y- yes, it was very much. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think uh, what I, I guess, to combine the answers to the two questions that you've asked, in some ways, r- the writing of Passion of the Western Mind was m- me seeking to bring into uh, a an intelligible whole the, these very diverse intellectual currents that had m- been um, shaping me. You know, so for, and, and in a way, it was like a kind of recapitulation of like the the Judeo-Christian Western 
spiritual tradition with the Greco-Roman and, and then the modern uh, and postmodern intellectual developments um, to somehow be able to bring those in together into a coherent narrative scene. I think all of us try to understand our lives and bring them into coherence, and this was the way I was partly doing it for myself. Now, the idea of participatory epistemology came as I... Uh, I wanted to see epistemology basically means you know how we know things and the, the study of how we know and <clears throat> I wanted to uh, engage the great problem of the modern world view, which is that you know here we are as a um, uh, a personal conscious purposeful self human self living in a world which our science describes and understands as being purposeless, unconscious, impersonal. So there's a kind of great contradiction between the deepest inner realities that are so close to our, our, our awareness versus <clears throat> the world that we understand ourselves as having evolved from and emerged out of. It's a, it's a deep paradox. That the inner we, and the outer. Yeah, and that, mm -hmm. I mean, somehow we are meaning-seeking subjects who live in a world that is meaningless. Um, According to Cartesian science. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so if we accept that contemporary, you know, dominant Western modern perspective, then we, we have this kind of contradiction that we, we all grow up with. And I felt that there's many ways to... Um, to dissolve that contradiction or to transcend it or to break through it, but um, it does require addressing. I mean, we, you can just, you know, have a psychedelic experience and immediately transcend that, uh, uh, that prison, or you could oh, deep meditative uh, practices uh, from the East. Uh, you talk also in uh, Passion of the Western Mind about a paradigm resonance, that a paradigm resonates with an archetypal state of the evolving collective psyche. Would you talk about that and what you had found? Because you also said it was curious that it paralleled the Groff perinatal process. Yes. What I'm, that's, this is uh, from the epilogue of Passion of the Western Mind, where I kind of look back at the whole history of the Western worldview from the ancient Greek um, understanding that came out of, like, say, Plato and, and uh, all the way up through our own time. And um, I, I drew upon the insights of Thomas Kuhn, the great philosopher and historian of science who wrote probably the most influ influential book of the last uh, 50 years uh, in the academic world, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, really shaped um, uh, the, the discussion and understanding of science, the history of science, but also the relationship of science to religion, um, recognizing that science is governed by paradigms, by ways of looking at the world that make its research and its theorizing possible, um, and that uh, there's nothing absolute about any particular scientific perspective. It's, it is one that is adopted by a particular, that perspective is adopted by a particular scientific community or sub-community at any given time as being fruitful for its 
research and convincing for its uh, understanding of reality, but that um, uh, it is not the last word and that, in fact, as time passes and anomalies uh, tend to be... And novelties, uh, yeah. And novelties tend to be um, encountered, uh, there will eventually become a state of tension within that community until a new sort of Promethean scientific genius like an Einstein um, will come along and propose a totally new perspective that radically changes and even overthrows the preceding paradigm that up until that point was looked upon as being um, absolutely true and valid. So this gave much more of a sense of, this is Kuhn's view, uh, gave... um, uh, historians of, of Western thought and, and philosophers of science a uh, deep insight into the way in which every paradigm or theoretical sort of superstructure um, will provide a kind of container within which scientific research takes place, and, and that helps the scientists decide what problems are important, what things should be pursued, how we should elaborate the theory. Um, but that after a while, um, that theory, that paradigm, will become less and less um, uh, adequate to the data that is coming in, and it will start to become seen as more and more problematic. and. Uh, even as constricting, and then finally there'll be this kind of revolutionary breakthrough, and then it's a movement into a a whole new universe, a new paradigm, because as Kuhn says, when you are in a different paradigm than another person, it's like you're living in a different world. So the two scientists working within different paradigms are, they are as if in different worlds altogether. Um, So what I noted is the extraordinary parallel between this Kuhnian understanding of the history of science and paradigms with uh, Stan Groff's brilliant work understanding how the uh, every human being is shaped by their, not only in a kind of psychoanalytic way, by their childhood, but also by the very powerful experience of, of birth, and that people who... Uh, relive their birth, often get deep insights into how um, there's an initial state of a kind of unitive, um, undifferentiated connection to, to, the, to the womb, to the mother, but beyond that, to mother nature, to, 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 the, to the universe. Um, the, and that, that state of uh, unitive, um, undifferentiated uh, consciousness then goes through... A, a development whereby there's a con- there's a there's a growth within that womb, a, and then uh, uh, eventually there'll be as the growth of the fetus, the embryo gets um, more and more developed, the um, the womb becomes too small. In a sense, the womb has done its job. The baby has come to term, and then there is a. Uh, uh, catalyzing of the birth contractions, probably a, a chemical signal that uh, it comes from the interaction between the uh, infant and the, and the maternal womb. And the uh, result of that, of course, the birth contractions happen, there's a crisis, there's a um, you know, struggle against the, uh, the old paradigm, the, 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 the womb that has been all 
nurturing and now is experienced as being constraining and constricting. And then finally there's a, a, a bursting out into, into birth, into a new life that's outside the old womb. And um, I pointed out how much this uh, process of um, conception and the, the birth labor, birth contractions, and then birth itself is comparable to the evolution of a scientific paradigm or any paradigm, a philosophical yeah. or, a, or a religious um, worldview. Just in with, the natural growth process. Exactly, that, that for a while it will provide a kind of womb within which the human mind is developing in a very helpful way. And then uh, at a certain point, in a sense, when that womb, that paradigm, that um, scientific or religious perspective has fulfilled itself after it's given everything that it needed to after that, uh, that the development has reached its maximum point, then there's a crisis and there's, it's felt the, the old paradigm is felt as being a big problem and as a, a constraint, even tyrannical. And um, then there's a, uh, a, a quest to break free from it, and it takes then a kind of, you know, an, uh, a, a kind of divine epiphany, um, which often scientists experience when they're breaking through, as Einstein did or as uh, um, Galileo or Kepler or Copernicus. They can really have a feeling that it's a, almost a moment of grace where they're getting a breakthrough into a new perspective that liberates them from the old womb, from the old paradigm, and brings them into uh, direct engagement with the world in a more intimate, exciting, liberating way. And yet we've really come to a point now where we have outgrown that Copernican, Keplerian, Galilean paradigm, have we not? Well, um, we have to make a distinction between, on the one hand, see, Cop uh, Copernicus and Kepler, their understanding of the universe was much more enchanted uh, than the conventional modern scientific universe, uh, which is seen uh, by, say, most contemporary cosmologists as being a random evolutionary process that has um, somehow unexpectedly produced as an epiphenomenon human, the human being, Homo sapiens, that has a self-reflective consciousness somehow that emerged out of um, this evolutionary process and that this human sensibility and consciousness has religious aspirations, a quest for meaning, and so forth, but it's basically has grown out of a universe that is seen as being, you know, a, intrinsically without meaning and purpose. Okay, now Copernicus and Kepler both saw the universe as being profoundly meaningful and purposeful. They saw it as an expression of the divine intelligence. Mm -hmm. yes. And um, they saw their own scientific quest as being a quest to, in a sense, overcome the darkness of the fall, to reconnect to the, 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 the uh, have a direct connection with the, with the divine and, the, and, a, and a, a kind of divine knowing. And they felt it uh, their uh, awakening to the heliocentric universe was like uh, the, the dawn of a new universe was like a dawn of a new um, a new religious lease on life like they had in, in, a, in some sense gotten closer to God so through that depth of understanding yes exactly and they felt like they were the first ones to to grasp the magnificence of the uh, divine minds um, architecture of the 
uh, solar system and, and, and the universe with the, with the sun seen as a kind of living symbol of God mm-hmm. and the earth and the planets revolve around um, the sun as uh, much like um, uh, angels and human beings revolving around the God, the central Godhead. Okay, so it's a very um, spiritually informed worldview. But I think what you're getting at quite correctly is that the Copernican, Galilean, uh, Keplerian, heliocentric universe eventually ended up as being this disenchanted universe that um, that was with Descartes and saying that uh, you know we're a clock. Yeah, yeah, machines. Although again, Descartes one of those. M- in the middle figures because he also still has, he's seeing the animal body as a clock and the, and even the human body is like a machine, uh, but he's seeing the human consciousness as being a spiritual gift from God. And so he has this dualistic, you know, universe between the inner and the outer and the, the human spirit versus the objective world. So again, he's, these are kind of, they're like all compromise formations between ancient medieval spirituality and on the one hand and modern science okay but as modern science progresses with the irony of fate the this uh <laughs> the disenchanted worldview gra- uh, gradually emerges out of this more mystical mathematical universe that these original scientific revolutionaries had right and you are saying in uh, at the end of your book passion of the western mind that the crisis of modern man is essentially a masculine crisis Okay, well, there I'm bringing in, that's at the very end, where I bring in um, the point about uh, notice how, as many have, that you know, virtually all the um, thinkers who have basically shaped the Western worldview f- from the Hebrew prophets and the um, uh, medieval theologians and the Greek philosophers right up to... Um, the major figures of the scientific revolution uh, were men. And in addition, the understanding of the human being was often framed in very masculine ways, talking about the human being as man oh, right. or um, uh, anthropos in Greek or homo in uh, Latin or um, uh, dermensch, uh, uh, dermensch in uh, German and so forth. And so... Um, what I suggest is that if you look at the way in which the human quest has been framed in this long tradition, like the words like the dignity of man or the descent of man or the ascent of man, um, the man's conquest of space and so forth, these are very uh, masculine symbolizations of the larger human reality and I think that there has been a great um, kind of one-sided possession of the Western mind and spirit by um, a kind of archetypal masculine, what I would now call a, a sort of solar masculine f- archetypal principle that has shaped how men and women, to a great extent, uh, have looked at the at the uh, universe, have looked at God, um, symbolizing God as, as as you know God the Father or um, uh, uh, me, uh, or Zeus or um, right. uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. and um, with a special relationship between God and man, and seeing nature and Mother Nature as 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 feminine and 
separate from and uh, less somehow less metaphysically significant and noble compared to God and man. So there, there's there's a, a real hierarchy and dualism that's pervaded the Western development that has had a gendered quality, and it's mm-hmm. affected also our epistemology, that is, our way of knowing things, so that the attempt to know things has been driven by this urge to control and predict and to feel separate from the the matrix out of which we emerge, nature, um, which you can see as being kind of a, a collective version of the of the young growing boy differentiating himself from his mother and the family and uh, the maternal womb and saying I'm separate from that and I'm I'm um, going to uh, be on my heroic quest uh, in, in my own uh, way and that's <clears throat> and, and to be self-defining and so forth so what I suggest there in the um, kind of climax of the passion of the western mind is that we seem to be at a tremendous moment of um, transformation whereby there's a a powerful impulse to reconnect with the with that which was lost by this one-sided development with the feminine dimension of being with the with with what i would more broadly define as the um also the in terms of like the solar and the lunar, like the archetypally, it's more the lunar, the ruler of the night sky, of the whole, of the of the um, multidimensional soul of, of 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 life. What we call the anima mundi, the the soul of the world. That um, if we were to let me take a very contemporary example that's emerged since Passion of the Western Mind. If you were to look in the last five years, uh, what you know. What book has sold the most books? What's been especially compelling for the collective psyche? Clearly, with the popularity of the Da Vinci Code, the book, the movie, the many books about it, books about Mary Magdalene and so forth, I think what we can see, we can sense in the collective psyche is a tremendous um, search for and perhaps a kind of recognition of the... um, the suppressed feminine partner of the spiritual hero of the West, which is Christ in the Christian tradition, and it's so shaped that that mythology, that that uh, religious uh, perspective, that archetypal. I mean, when I use the word myth, I'm not meaning it just like as a as a fantasy or an illusion. This is myth as a living archetypal reality, much in the way Joseph Campbell would say, you know that. It's not too much to say that myth is the secret opening through which the cosmos pours forth its inexhaustible energies into the uh, into human cultural manifestation. Um, in that sense, this powerful, you know, Christian mythos that has really carried the spiritual um, center of the West um, for you know uh, close to two millennia has been defined by a missing of, a, a suppression of, a differentiation, but also suppression of half of existence. What Yang by the yin, uh, the, uh, the, the, the masculine from the feminine, the solar from the lunar, the individual over the larger community of being, um, the hero from the great mother archetype, and so forth. There's different ways of um, uh, describing this. And 
can't we see in something like the Da Vinci Code phenomenon a, a, a deep um, uh, thirst for and search for this, the, the divine dimension of, uh, uh, let's call it the feminine dimension of the divine, um, and the uh, really, the, in some sense, the, the soul of life that is in our bodies, in, in the earth, and in all the species of animals and plants and the stars, somehow in the modern development, we lost, as Thomas Berry would say, we lost the capacity to hear the music of the spheres, to, to, to be able to listen to the trees and the animals and the, and the meaning of the um, rest of, of nature. And so um, I think whether it's you know, Mary Magdalene or the Gaia hypothesis or the um, recovery of a, uh, a goddess tradition in women's spirituality um, or the recovery of uh, the importance of, of, of myth through Joseph Campbell's work or the Jungian understanding of the archetypal psyche. All these are pointing towards, I think, a, a powerful paradigm shift in contemporary consciousness. And that brings me to your new book, Cosmos and Psyche, that was published in 2006. How did you come to find validity in Western astrology? Well, this research uh, began actually 30 years ago. Um, Stan Groff and I were uh, living and working at Esalen at that point. I, I was... Uh, um, I eventually became the director of programs there, and he was a scholar in residence there. And we were um, we were looking at the, the the riddle of why different people would for ex- um, have such radically different experiences. Using you know, he was an expert in the area of psychedelic therapy, using using uh, LSD and and other psychoactive um, substances. What um, primal and shamanic cultures would call sacred medicines uh, to help facilitate profound psychological and spiritual growth. And there was a kind of mystery that the different clinics that he worked at, both in Prague and in Maryland with the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, um, uh, he was dealing with this riddle uh, of why the same person could take the same um, substance, same quantity, and have radically different experiences at different times, or two people could have the same substances, substance, same um, set and setting, and have radically different experiences at the same time. Um, what was the was there any way of predicting this? Because there's so much at stake, whether one had a very positive or a very, you know, terrible experience. Um, though you, in the right hands, in the right context, every experience can uh, be can serve the unfolding of the uh, of, of a person. But certainly, but some these are extraordinarily powerful tools. Very powerful tools, and they really need to be used with very you know great um, care. And I think ultimately in a sacramental way. Yeah. In, in the the clinics and institutes that uh, Stan Groff worked in. The, they had performed tests, uh, te- basically examining whether there was any psychological tests that could be of value in predicting what kinds of experiences people would have. And um, none of them, 
whether it was the Rorschach test or the TAT, the Medigap Perception test or the uh, MMPI, had any predictive value. Well, at Esalen, Esalen is a, a center where many different perspectives were explored. And, you know, if you walk into that place in the late 60s or the 1970s, you would find, you know, as part of the everyday vocabulary of the people who were living there, teaching there, learning there, you would find, you know, I, things like the Tao or synchronicities or karma uh, as being just part of the way of understanding things. Um, and also, the astrological perspective was something that was explored there, too. And Because um, it, was, it was popular at that time. I mean, that's when I myself started studying uh, astrology, not thinking that it would have the kind of validity that you're exploring for us. Well, and what, what I mean, I, I was quite skeptical to begin with, thinking that this is, you know, the least plausible of all, you know, new paradigm perspectives or, or ancient esoteric perspectives. It just seemed to me so unlikely that there could be a relationship between planetary movements and the state of my psyche. However, some of the more sophisticated people there at Esalen convinced me that I should consider there to be more than I was assuming in astrology. And I started reading some books. I, I learned how to calculate both birth charts and transits, which is where the planets are now in relationship to where they were when you were born, um, which seems in, in astrological uh, understanding is seen as giving indications of what kinds of experiences you would have at any given time. So I learned how to do the calculations. It's not that difficult, though it takes a fair amount of time to do the natal chart calculations. But <clears throat> I learned it, and uh, this is before personal computers could right. do it in a split second now. And So you're um, doing the real thing. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I think actually helpful to do the the the, the work. You know, of uh, uh, the mathematics. Yeah, the mathematics. It's a kind of almost a, a discipline that helps build the ground mm -hmm. uh, of the intuitive or or archetypal insight that you may get from the study. Well, both Stangroff and I were were told by one particular astrologer who came through uh, Esalen named Arnie Tretovic since he had noticed that people's experiences in everyday life and the major crises and so forth and breakthroughs tended to be understandable in terms of the transits that they were having at any given time, he said, well, this should also give us insight into what kinds of experiences people were having in, the, uh, in their non-ordinary states of consciousness catalyzed by using a psychoactive substance. So we thought, well, let's do, we've got good records of our of our uh, own personal sessions. Let's look at the transits that we had for that, look at the, what the textbooks say would tend to occur with those transits and see if there's any correspondence at all. And in fact, the, uh, in doing that research, we found that the correspondence was so striking that we then extended the study to, I mean, basically everybody that was at Esalen coming through. Then I started looking at all the charts and transits of major cultural figures, like what did Galileo have when he turned the telescope to the heavens? What did um, Jung have when he had his powerful transformative experiences in the 19-teens that gave the birth to his uh, philosophy? You know, what did um, Rosa Parks have when she refused to get up from the bus, you know, and 
catalyzed the civil rights movement and so forth. And uh, it was just mind-blowing. I mean, it was, I, I, I was completely unprepared for how precise and consistent were the correspondences between people's experiences and the transits to their natal charts that they were having at the same time. And so um, that research continued, you know, year after year. I began to then look at the larger historical cycles to see how not only individuals but the collective historical events and trends correlated with extraordinary consistency with the big cycles of the outer planets. So it was this study that over, um, I mean, a 20 and then eventually 30-year period that uh, kind of inspired me to uh, write Cosmos and Psyche. I actually wrote Passion of the Western Mind to be the the first few chapters of Cosmos and Psyche. Mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to set out the historical, mm-hmm. philosophical base ground to sort of build a bridge to this, to the um, astrological perspective. But eventually um, that became a book in itself. I published right. that. Then I started teaching in graduate schools, uh, and the book started being used in many probably about 100 universities. I, I lost, I stopped counting after about 80 or so um, colleges and universities were using it as a textbook. Mm-hmm. But eventually I, I got enough time to finish Cosmos and Psyche and, and brought it out this year. And so it just opened up a whole transformation of my understanding of the, of, of the cosmos. I mean, just seeing that, you know, we live, as Shakespeare put it, in... A, uh, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. This is extraordinary because it opens up a whole heretofore unexplored, uh, at least in, in modern times, it, with uh, the scientific ability that we have of uh, codifying and taking statistical studies of uh, events, but this is a whole new terrain of emotional awareness. It does have emotional consequences because if you think, if you um, discover that the universe you live in has some kind of meaningful relationship to the um, unfolding of your life, it can heal the the, the rupture that um, is part of the modern condition. So there is an and emotional that huge tension that was in that yeah that rupture. So, so there is an emotional and spiritual. Uh, quality to it. I mean, uh, also, though, at an archetypal level, suddenly you can say, okay, well, um, I'm going to have to watch out for XYZ transit and to reflect to you that I had a very powerful experience when Pluto conjuncted my moon, for example, Mm -hmm. which I didn't expect to have such deep impact, but Mm -hmm. it really did. And Mm -hmm. uh, But it gives us a whole different way of Exploring the universe in a in an archetypal way that's outside of the intellect. Would well, you say? I don't think it's outside the intellect. <laughs> it's just that the intellect doesn't necessarily grasp in the same way it can grasp how a car works. Right. Um, right. It there's there's a there's a mystery unfolding here. But it is, on the other hand, highly intellectually fulfilling to do this kind of research because it, and 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 it's also intellectually demanding too i mean oh, it, yeah. it, it it so it's it's not kind of anti-intellectual which is how for example a conventional scientist who hasn't done this kind of research right. would tend to caricature the study but this is all about resonances i'm i'm i've been a piano technician for many years and and when i came on your work and also in my own study of astrology 
this is is such a deep body if not a cosmic resonance that that you've begun to open up here in a real uh, rigorous way well that's why i i I, wa- I want to emphasize that you know i'm by no means the the uh the first or the only person to be doing this kind of research in in the modern period there are many uh uh, superb astrological researchers and pioneers that have been working in, particularly in this last century, you know, starting mm-hmm. oh, Dane Rudyard and uh, Robert Hand, and, Rob Hand yep. and Liz Green and yep. so forth. Um, what I brought to the table was, um, uh, you know, a set of, I mean, each person brings a different set of qualities to the task. And, and I had, you know, a particular... Mm, knowledge of history and interest. Well, your Jesuit in, uh, and Harvard ex- education that the, that definitely played that a brought role. Brought the rigor of yeah. the capability. Not to say that the other astrologers didn't have it, but you had it. Um, your own unique yeah, approach background. At yeah, and then also um, the, the sheer amount of research. Also, I mean, I think there's many other astrologers who have done a lot of research, mm-hmm. um, but this uh, was of a particular sort that was particularly focused on uh, the planetary archetypes and the alignments, the moving alignments of the of the planets, as these correspond to the unfolding archetypal dynamics of both the individual and the collective. I focused so sort of one-pointedly on that for uh, so many years that uh, and collected the evidence together in a kind of, you know, coherent body of research that this perhaps is, is what's more, you know, unique about this this book in particular. But I really want to emphasize how much I am part of a, you know, a larger community of inquiry. And in fact, you know, as I acknowledge in the back of the Cosmos and Psyche in the acknowledgement section, and there were, I had 30 readers, advanced readers of the book who were reading this chapter by chapter, section by section, as I was writing it. Uh, and they they were really crucial participants and co-creators in, in this book. I mean, I'm very indebted to, uh, you know, quite a few people who um, helped shape how the book came out. And yet you're, you've made a bridge between conventional Western science that had a rift and the 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 living breathing expression of the cosmos. Um, I wanted to uh, let my listeners know that there's a, a great interview that you did uh, that's on your website, uh, cosmosandpsyche.com. Is it? Yeah, the website is cosmosandpsyche.com. Is what like one word, cosmos and psyche, and then dot com. And it's the um, the uh, CBC radio interview where the lady asks you, well. How is it that the planets are controlling me? And you say, no, they're not controlling you. They're more indicators of what's actually going on in the whole universe. Yeah, it, I think the uh, planets, um, it's better to, I think the evidence suggests that the, there's more of a synchronistic relationship between the planetary movements and our our lives. It's not that Mars is making this person angry or Saturn is making that person depressed or whatever. It's a... Um, it's more of an uh that they are there is a it's a field phenomenon it's there there's more of a it's like a the universe seems to be so integrated from the outermost cosmos to the innermost psyche um and it's integrated in a way by meaning and so there is a coherence between as above so below you know the macrocosm and the microcosm uh there's a beautiful passage that 
the great Greek philosopher Plotinus um, writes about this. Um, he writes about understanding the astrological universe n- not as uh, like a mechanistic system where the planets are, are causing things to happen, but rather they are indicative. Rob Hand uses a very good metaphor of the the clock. The fact that the clock says that it's 3 p.m. right now doesn't cause it to be 3 p.m. Rather, it indicates that it's 3 p.m. It's a it's part of a larger field. And uh, Plotinus puts it this way. Um, he's the most influential philosopher of later classical antiquity, the great Neoplatonist. He said, Everything in the world is full of signs. The stars are like letters which inscribe themselves at every moment in the sky. All events are coordinated. All things depend on each other. As has been said, everything breathes together. And in, in, in any case, I did address that issue of um, the... Uh, what a skeptical uh, one one skeptical view would be. Well, are you saying that the planets, you know, cause this to us right. to be a certain way? It, it isn't that simple. It's much. It's it's a much more um, holistic, uh, synchronistic understanding that I would suggest. And I wanted to come next now to um, a lecture you did just recently uh, for the Institute of Noetic Sciences with uh, Dean Radin and Marilyn Schlitz about the uh, the taboos in spirituality and science. And it seems that with the introduction of uh, a tremendously valid body of research, uh, you've come smack up against a, a scientific taboo. Yeah, what could be, I mean, even as I myself was skeptical, I could hardly expect anything else from, you know, um, say people like an astronomers or physicists who have invested their whole life in a particular paradigm and worldview and astrology is the perspective that would is most likely to cause an immediate apoplectic seizure <laughs> in, 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 if you were to you know suggest that it's valid now the fact of the matter is i mean really i have to say the my book uh, cosmos and psyche that is hasn't run into that much skepticism because it isn't um it's it's kind of going under the radar screen of the mainstream. You know, it's not like the uh, Scientific American hasn't reviewed it. Although, actually, here's the funny thing: is that on the Scientific American website, someone pointed this out to me. There is a a positive readers review on it, and they actually are selling it on their in their bookstore. So I don't know. There maybe is a little disconnect between the um, uh, editors and the uh, actual. Uh, <laughs> Um, things that are get on the website, but by and large, um, like the book hasn't been reviewed in the New York Times, and uh, and I'm glad it hasn't. You know, I, I the New York Times doesn't even like Jung, so I can imagine that a you know Jungian um, informed archetypal astrological view would not be um, well received. So I uh, basically the book is being. Um, picked up and spread word of mouth. It's actually selling at twice the pace that Passion of the Western Mind was selling at the same um, period in its in its after publication, and I th- it's basically being spread by word of mouth um, by people who have you know been affected by it or compelled by it, uh, inspired by it, whatever, and then they pass it on. And that's really how I was hoping to do it. I I, I didn't want to make a, a big sensational splash. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm 
I'm ready to, uh, I think the evidence is very strong. Um, I've, res I've basically articulated re responses to many um, of the classic um, skeptical uh, uh, arguments against this um, perspective. One of the things you were saying in the IONS lecture, though, was the, that the, the taboos are actually a, a, a response from the masculine and the fem uh, to well, the feminine. I, I suggested that at one level, there, that's one, one of the things that I think is going on, um, <clears throat> that, the, that the, there's a kind of masculine posture uh, that informs the modern scientific mind's identification of itself uh, with this kind of heroic lone cowboy in in a vast meaningless cosmos that it will understand with the brilliance of its intellect and and uh, control predict um, in a sense conquer through knowledge uh, this um, this universe and astrology is a lot of the terms that are used about astrology um, uh, that it's soft or soft-minded or it's... Uh, um, well, that's been a perennial complaint about archetypal and, or even psychology itself. Exactly. Uh, that it's a soft science. Yeah. This, this, um, this, these dis What's the word I'm looking for? Hierarchical distinctions between hard and soft, between tough-minded and tender-minded, between um, <clears throat> uh, a perspective perspective that is um, engaging the universe in a no-nonsense, tough-minded, um, uh, and basically disenchanted way, versus one that takes, that looks at the universe as being potentially endowed with uh, soul and spirit, uh, uh, in, intelligence, that in which, in a sense, psyche and soul are seen as not being just a human um, possession, but as being something that informs nature itself, th that nature has an interior dimension, that nature and the cosmos are, are just as deeply informed by spiritual mystery as the human consciousness is, that I think for a uh, conventional modern scientist is a kind of um, threat to an unconscious identification of the, the scientific mind with being a kind of mm, masculine uh, identity that needs to be feel itself separate from and superior to a, uh, a mother nature and, uh, and a nature and cosmos that uh, it sees as being um, needing to be controlled and co conquered in a sense. Well, with that, I, we're running out of time, and, and um, I, I thought I've, I've interviewed Stan Groff on this show before also, and I thought both you guys must have gotten quite a chuckle with that particular thing, being that uh, Pluto has now been demoted as a planet. Would you care to comment on Pluto's demotion? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> well, I think the, you know, of course, what uh, we categorize a celestial body as whether it's a planet or what they're now saying is a dwarf planet, which I, I totally understand the reasoning. Um, that doesn't have any effect on the, on the meanings or the synchronistic um, phenomena that we see in human life that corresponds to the planetary position. Um, 
neither the size nor the distance of of a body seems to have any major um, uh, influence on the corresponding astrological phenomena that we see. It's um, like the moon, for example, is very small indeed. The moon's smaller than Pluto. The moon is uh, not a planet, but the moon is immensely important astrologically. That's uh, one of and the, th- the three primary influences in a yeah, natal chart. Yeah, and I mean the, the, the sun, the moon, and the uh, ascendant are what astrologers typically uh, focus in on right away. So it's not a um, it's not something that uh, is Pluto's significance is not affected at all by what <laughs> name or category we as astronomers uh, would give to uh, that planet. But I think the discovery of these other bodies near, you know, in that general trans-Neptunian uh, belt um, are... Like Sedna. Yeah, and now uh, Eris. Um, these are important discoveries. Uh, what's happening is it's a, they're very representative of the age, which each, as was the discovery of Neptune or, you know, Uranus in 1781 or Neptune in, in 1846 or Pluto in 1930, each of those discoveries happened in eras that were archetypally resonant with the meanings that astrologers eventually uncovered uh, and uh, now are in complete, this is something that's remarkable, is that astrologers are in complete consensus about the meanings of those outer three bodies, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. That would be hard to to achieve if they weren't looking at something that they, um, something that transcended their projections. Mm-hmm. Now, but get, my main point, though, is that the discovery of these new bodies is a very postmodern discovery in that First of all, it shows us how much um, it places, it dissolves old structural certainties, categories, like what is a planet. It, it, and it also reveals to us the, the extent to which these are human categories that we're, um, that we're interpreting the data and giving them names, and it's, it's not absolute. Pluto was a planet, now it's a dwarf planet. And, so, okay. and then the, the third thing is that it seems to be dissolving the boundary of the solar system in relationship to the galaxy. And in that yes. sense, there's a kind of, um, it's a, perhaps a kind of cosmically significant um, set of discoveries that is opening human consciousness and the Earth community to its participation in a larger uh, conscious, in a larger cosmos. Let me ask you about the talk you gave this last weekend, then, about the emerging synthesis of archetypal astrology and depth psychology. Well, this is something that uh, Stan Groff and I have been, um, you know, giving teaching courses on for quite a few years and actually going back over 20 years to Esalen, but particularly here at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, Stan and I have been teaching these courses on that particular synthesis since uh, about 90, early 94. And um, it, I think the um, best way I could summarize it is uh, Stan Groff has said that Archetypal astrology seems to have provided unexpectedly a kind of Rosetta Stone for the understanding of the psyche. And um, uh, it's much to both of our surprise, after many years of research, we've come to the conclusion that um, the correlations uh, of the planets with the particular 
kinds of experiences people have uh, in the unfolding of life and with the psychological uh, dynamics and even psychopathology and with therapeutic breakthroughs and so forth is so consistent and so precise it, it uh, has convinced us that in the future like future textbooks of psychology will look back on 20th century modern psychologists working without the aid of astrology as being very much uh, like medieval astronomers working without the aid of the telescope. Astrology, and particularly this archetypal astrology that, that focuses on the, 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 the significance of the, of the archetypes, their multivalent character, and uh, the connection of these with the, um, the kind of Jungian and, and transpersonal understanding of the psyche is so illuminating and so powerful that it really is comparable to having a, a telescope where one didn't have in, in relationship now to the inner cosmos uh, uh, rather than the outer cosmos, except that now we're joining the two. And that's the great uh, conjunction of uh, inner and outer that uh, this form of um, this perspective and, and method of analysis uh, opens up for us. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and uh, taking the time to, uh, to do this interview. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, a guide to mystical experience, with my guest, Rick Tarnas. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.